0: It's very 90s in terms of, yeah, pop the music and skating, but we've no concept of Yeah, the
1: skating thing's a bit funny, actually. It's very, like...
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, none of us live in a perpetually gridlocked city. I mean, I guess you can't breathe in gridlocked cities, but... Yeah, but I mean,
1: the fact that that was what he went to.
0: Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists, and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes, or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the program. In his 1992 book Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson predicted a world in which the virtual was important as the physical and where success in the internet of the metaverse was real success. He wrote... At this moment, a Nipponese businessman somewhere, in a nice hotel in London, or an office in Tokyo, or even in the first-class lounge of the Lath, the Los Angeles Tokyo hypersonic, is sitting in front of his computer, red-faced and sweating, looking at the Black Sun Hall of Fame. He has been cut off from contact with the Black Sun itself, disconnected as it were from the metaverse, and is just seeing a two-dimensional display. The top ten swordsmen of all time are shown along with their photographs. Beneath is a scrolling list of numbers and names, starting with number 11. He can scroll down the list if he wants to find his own ranking. The screen helpfully informs them that he is currently ranked 863 out of 890 people who have ever participated in a sword fight in The Black Sun. Number 1, the name and the photograph on top of the list, belongs to Hero Protagonist. The central character of this novel, who is literally called Hero Protagonist, is a man with few material possessions who lives inside a storage container. And yet, because of his hacking skills, he's one of the most important people in the world. This dichotomy between the real and the virtual, and how the virtual can be as important, is what forms the central idea of the novel. I'm Matthew Campbell. I never play full price for a late pizza. Joining me this month... I'm Alex Hoseason. I'm John Wood. I'm Serena. Okay, so um, I picked this one, but uh, Alex is super excited about cyberpunk, so I guess he's a good place to start. Uh, and we were talking
1: before about the idea of the virtual being real. Yeah, I think... I mean, I I read this novel a couple of years ago and, uh, well, again, just before. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is how, for me, when I use the internet, which is, I mean, in some small way, most of the time, actually, uh, carrying around my phone and in front of a laptop or tablet or whatever, um, when, when I use the internet, it's just as real for me as real life as such. Um, And I I think this really struck me actually about, well, a few years ago when I was trying, as most kind of millennials do at some point, to teach my parents how to use computers. I mean, my dad's reasonably good at it, but one of the things that I think stopped my mum from embracing the technology is this constant fear that it was going to break. You know, she typed something down and she thought that was permanent in some way, or you know she accidentally deleted something and she couldn't press the undo key and I, I think treating it as something alien that can be manipulated is, is fundamentally different to the way I interact with it having grown up playing games and, 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 and using the net for various things with Wikipedia and and you know in, 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 in my life now so I, I, I find it quite an interesting examination I mean the novel's hideously prescient right I mean I've run around virtual worlds cutting people's heads off um, you know and and, you talk and, about and, and in the game. Um.
0: The, the thing that always fascinates me is Alex is a big fan of EVE Online. Well, I, I used to be. <laughs> he talks about the game and the people and the events as if they are real things. And that's not to knock the game on the head. They are real, in a sense. But there's
2: almost no uh, difference to our generation. Well, I would go further. I mean, I, before I came back to university as a more mature student, I spent... Uh, best part of seven years as a full-time chef and to be honest most of the time role-playing games and you know online MMORPGs <laughs> were much more meaningful than the fact that I did more or less exactly the same thing at work every day so so as a I mean of- if I'm thinking of my memories of my early 20s the time I spent online was much more meaningful it seems in retrospect than roughly doing the same thing every day for work. Yeah, I, th- I think
1: one of the things that strikes me with this kind of way of interaction, and, and I've brought this up at conferences before, is there's a lot of people that talk about games and online interaction as, and um, through games and, and, and other forms as kind of um, ways of making allegories for things in real life. So we talk about games like Grand Theft Auto, promoting violence and all of that kind of thing, and uh, Call of Duty, or you can mow down loads of Russians... Um, or there's a game where you might blub a real city, right? London gets destroyed, but, and people will say, you know, what does this mean? You know, what are we teaching our children to be or do? Um, and I think I was always fascinated by a slightly different question, and that is to say, well, in games like EVE, which I played for quite a long time, something entirely fictional can happen, right? And what you might want to call a collective fantasy, right a, 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 you know in this game it might be a battle over a space station or or something and then in the future two people can meet and talk about that as if it actually happened they can bond over that it's a it's a myth that they collectively engage in as a way of constructing their identity so if there's something fictional like some you know br45b or you know whatever star system someone can say i was there even though they're on the coast of West Wales, and that can mean something.
3: I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about playing online games. I mean, I don't especially play online games, but when I was reading the book, I was constantly thinking about our, actually our presence on social media, no, absolutely. and how definitely, how we craft a certain identity on social media. And I mean, for me, that's kind of a bit terrifying, right? I mean, you're talking about manipulation of information as well about, you know, crafting a fantasy. I mean, for some of us and some of our friends, right, crafting a certain identity on Facebook, it's very, very important, right? So I was just, I was just actually thinking, like, what does actually do to us, like, in real life?
0: Right? I mean, the, the stereotype is always mm. that social media causes us to overshare, mm. and that we're putting far too much online. But what little research that has been done by psychologists actually suggests that maybe the opposite might be true. So, for example, um, everyone puts on their wedding photos and, you know, wonderful romantic gestures of their partner, but you tend not to, unless it's a public meltdown, see the less happy sides of those marriages. And so, actually, you get a warped view of what the world is like because of undersharing.
1: You only see what people want to share. Yeah, I think there's a big difference between how these things actually work and what people, you know, the kind of, if you like, a kind of conservative critic might say could be the problem. But I, the point is these things come with entire languages. You know, these don't have to be games. I remember when I was I don't know 14, 13, 14, something like that. You know, I used to use MSN Messenger or AOL chat, um AIM or you know, the Yahoo equivalent, you know, whatever. IRC and and things like that. They have entire languages. Right? And and one of the things you see a lot in the book is that one of the characters who's a kind of hip teenager, YT she is constantly disturbed whenever she's with old people and they're talking about things in, in, in the wrong way or they're talking about things in a slightly different way. My mum once texted me with a message about someone dying with LOL at the end. thinking. About and what she meant love. by LOL was lots of love. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, mum, that's horrible. right? Um, but, you know, these things change at an extraordinary pace. I think that... So we've
0: been comparing worlds like Eve or Azeroth or Facebook, but I think that Snow Crash goes a lot further in the, the metaverse and the Black Sun, which is their RPG tavern, basically. It's not just an alternative to the world, it has, subs- it has overtaken the world, right? It is, that is where business deals take place. Um, hero Protagonist is functionally the best swordsman in the world because almost nobody has real sword fights anymore. And there's a part in the novel where he has to work out in order to build up enough muscles to wield a real sword because suddenly physical combat's going on. So I think that the parallels with our own world actually run out, or at least they do so far in our world, in that we haven't quite got to the era where, okay, you might have a Skype business meeting, but you're still some guys in a suit in an office in New York talking to other people in suits in an office in Tokyo, rather than going to a third virtual place with different faces and different bodies and different clothes.
1: I think you're right, but there are still parallels in the sense that the metaverse that they use, um, the street and all the things that come off it, there's certain things you can access and certain things you can't, right? So there's only certain parts of that world which are entirely shared, right? And of course, we might suggest that you know there's certain parts of the internet that are more shared than others is facebook effectively a public resource right and, and 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 yet you know control over even the the metaverse in the book is still controlled by a private corporation right so i think while we're not yet at the level of kind of full digital integration or anything there are hints of that being the case Um, although in some ways they might be more restricted than the ideology would have us believe, right? You you get these kind of, oh, um, services which businesses can buy, which allow you to have a fully integrated office environment, including virtual workspace and all of those things. The question is whether that's going the way of the kind of thing that Second Life was supposed to offer, which is an entirely integrated digital world, which failed. But for a long time, I mean, there's entire books written on Second Life Gushing about how it's, it is second life. It is quite literally second life.
2: I know. I was just going to say. I mean, maybe looking at like Facebook as as the model for online interaction is the wrong way to go because I mean that's very much about networks all integrating one with another. I was thinking maybe more like Reddit, with it sort of having a few central communities which everybody starts out as a part of, and then there's various sorts of gated and sub-gated communities is much more in keeping in line with like the aesthetic of Snow Crash
1: and the virtual world, which it displays. Yeah, I mean of course in the book I mean the the, the analogy with the, the metaverse being, you know, cut off to certain people and, and having variable access and all the rest of it. I mean of course that's mirrored in the real inverted commas real life of the characters, right? With with gated communities and and, and, and so and so on. Right, which I I mean Zygmunt Bauman recently argued in the, who's a famous sociologist recently argued in the, the context of the migrant crisis that actually the main privilege afforded to the rich in the modern world is mobility yeah. having a passport in the first place
0: is a privilege and, and certainly mobility is one of the central themes of snow crash. right. so um, Y.T. the courier is, she rides a skateboard and you know, uses a magnetic harpoon to get through traffic um, Hero can go anywhere he wants in the metaverse and at one point he's driving a virtual motorcycle around really fast. Um, pizza delivery drivers are one of the central ideas of the book and, you know, they're legendarily quick and everyone gets out of their way. And it's people who can't move, such as the refugees on the giant refugee aircraft carrier that floats around the Pacific, whose movement is limited. And I think the world of Snow Crash where... So state power doesn't exist anymore. It's not territorial. And so instead, it's a function of how mobile you are, how much you can move between communities, rather than your membership of one.
3: Yeah, uh, but uh, Whitey has a special access, right, to most of the communities, right? I mean, her description of the the outfit is she has yeah. different visas, yeah. So, I mean, probably, she, from my point of view, she's the most mobile.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say this is no different actually mm-hmm. from Jobs supporting your visa. Um, you know we have a lot of problems now with international students who pay some. You know, frankly, extraordinary amounts of money sometimes to come and study here. They're being trained in the UK, and yet the UK economy then gains no benefit from them because the current state of play with immigration law is that they then get thrown out <laughs> because they can't earn some absurd amount of money. So I mean, this is a this is a real privilege that's afforded by organizations right um you know at some point the main kind of well at least in terms of the action the antagonist raven is described as a sovereign state yeah because he has a nuclear well, weapon
0: well <laughs> this is the he, he's one of the most powerful people in the world he's homeless but he has a nuclear weapon in the sidecar of his motorcycle it makes him a, a nuclear power but i think it's it's no accident that of course he's a illusion and this is a while well, they're not stateless, they lack sovereignty over their own lands and their own fate. And so, of course, he's ahead of the curve when it comes to the post-state world in which he has to literally carry around his power with him.
3: I mean, he's carrying his power with him, but isn't he actually working for um, Bob Al Rife? So I mean, he's not as autonomous as you'd argue. At well, least maybe that was my impression from the book, right?
1: Yeah, I think he describes at some point mm. that he's effectively... I mean, whether it, whether it would actually work out. Mm. But yeah, I mean, he says, well, it's a kind of alliance of mm. convenience. Because the fact is, I mean, actually, I completely forgot one plot point. I mean, the the, the bomb is linked to his nervous system, yeah. so that if he dies, it goes off. And of course, at some point, I was thinking, well, why didn't they, you know, some obvious point, well, you know, why didn't, why did he just kill him? And of course, you know, a submarine somewhere would blow up. <laughs> um... So I, I, I think he's 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 not very well drawn in the plot, particularly. I mean, he's effectively just some kind of guy that comes and kills people when it's convenient.
0: It's, it's partly a function of his role, right? In that he has to be the mysterious assassin. Spoilers: it's him. Um, and in that respect, you can't like see him because that way he becomes real and therefore less scary.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, talking about that, those kind of social arrangements. I mean, would, would you say that this book's kind of a dystopic one as such like is it a dystopia
0: or i i suspect i'm gonna get some disagreement here but i'd say yes right so it might look cool to be a samurai hacker who delivers pizzas for the mafia but hero's exceptional he is the protagonist there's no there's government drones who aren't happy there's people who live in the birdclaves, the suburban enclaves where well, the joy of their life is ordering a pizza because it's presumably the only thing in their world that works um The height of success for the middle classes is running a small restaurant or other small business. And there's all these refugees on a giant flotilla tied to a disused aircraft carrier. However cool the virtual samurai are, that's the
2: world for most people. And I think that's inherently dystopian. But I would argue that it's not especially dystopian because most people in the book seem not really to have noticed the fundamental shifts in the world because they well yeah, they live in birdclaves, but once they're inside their little bubble they seem to live much of a similar suburban lifestyle to what they were living before and the people who embrace the anarchic world outside of these zones of safety often choose to so for some people, it is a dystopia, and for other people, it seems to have largely changed. And therefore, I would say it's it's not entirely dystopian, because I mean, well, the, I mean, it shows a broad range, a, a spectrum of the possible lifestyles. But the religious fanatics who run
0: Rife's aircraft carrier empire don't choose, do they? They're either penniless or they're
2: brainwashed. Hmm. Well, you got me there
1: to some extent, but. <laughs> I think there's a definite element of kind of a, a, a slightly different conception of class that you find in the book, right, in, in in the sense that there's there's economic second-class citizens like the refugees in the book and the Aleutians and so and so on, but there's also digital second-class citizens, that is people that don't have a good connection, right, and they come across in the metaverse as black and white and they don't have access to things like the Black Sun, which is the kind of bar where all the cool people go and the the architects of the metaverse go to hang out. Um, And so they they quite literally don't have the ability to... Well, it's a mobility thing again. They don't have the ability to move around in the same way. And and you you could even craft an argument from there that this is
0: one area where our world has reached up with Snow Crash, which is that if you say don't have an internet connection, which many people don't, but 10% of this country... Still doesn't. And this is a first world country. Well, then it's much harder to apply for jobs because councils are online. It's much harder to deal with your electricity bill or whatever the other bill is, so you'll get more fines. It's harder to do banking. And so we do have a... basically an internet lower class emerging in the sense that connectivity is this asset, right?
1: Well, I mean, fun fact, right? The BT, um, the connection to Aberystwyth, the internet connection Um, has been oversold by hundreds of percent and won't be changed because students aren't classed as permanent residents. I mean, that makes a geographical hierarchy in terms of infrastructure. Uh, I mean, not not quite as serious as the one you're talking about, but I mean, in terms of when your job prospects and ability to network and everything else are a function of your access to information, then it does make a difference.
0: I mean, is infrastructure something the novel ignores, though? Because we, we don't learn how anyone's generating electricity, right?
1: Not necessarily generation of electricity, but it is interesting that I think there's, particularly when it comes to roads and train lines in the uh, real life part, as it were, of, of, of Snow Crash. I mean, it, it, it talks about how there's several different lines all going the same way run by different companies. Um, and they shoot at each other. Yeah, they shoot each other on the way past. You know, so I think there's definitely an aspect of this um refusal to or or things are built as a function of need for particular companies and they consider that just a cost. Right. But it also notes that up north when Hero goes north to is it Alaska or yeah. um the roads aren't lit. Right, and, and and you know what's this a function of? Well, it's a function of the fact that there's no such thing as public goods, right? I mean, the government in this sense is 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 a private company. Um, you know, one of the kind of funnier parts of the book is where he describes the kind of direction that the CIA took, and now the Central Intelligence Corporation. You know, when they realised that actually their best way for raising money was to sell information, it was one of the biggest stock offerings in history. Which is of course where we've gone with data sharing and social media, right?
3: Now, I was thinking about selling um intelligence when I was uh reading the book, I think it raised more questions for me about who owns that intelligence and how that intelligence is shared and and distributed i think I think that's a really more interesting question for me, like the ownership about of data mm. and ownership of intelligence
0: well, I mean. Certainly so from the character's point of view, oh, they own their virtual selves, right? And certainly within the text that the book uses, uh, Hero's uh, heroes house in the metaverse is his house. And it's a thing he owns. Uh, but this is a conversation Alex and I were having the other day, in fact it must have been yesterday, that in our world, lore can't quite keep up with the nature of the virtual world. So in theory, we own our virtual computer games. But... They don't exist anywhere, right? My copy of Half-Life 2 is not doesn't actually exist. So do I own anything?
1: it's about to make a Half-Life 3 joke. Um, well, yeah, I think it's absolutely the case. I mean, actually, for I was looking through, um, I would use the words for fun, but not necessarily, um, a lot of the terms of service that my phone signed up to for Google's things, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are aspects of, like, uh, when you think about it, I, mean, I, I was visiting Manchester the other day, which is a city I've not been to before, or at least you know not for any extended period of time. And I was walking around, and I'll tell you, you know, when it's got a reasonable internet connection, which it does in Manchester, my phone can do some pretty cool stuff, right? I can get directions that it then relays to me by audio while I'm listening to a podcast. Um, you know, I can set reminders so. If I go back to my hotel room, when I go back to my hotel room, it'll remind me to do something in my hotel room. All of these things. Now, this stuff is always pinging around. But I mean, it's pretty incredible the amount of stuff that you agree to. No one ever reads the terms of service, right? And it's an issue. But the point is, when tech companies have this much money and this much power and this ability to. Do pretty much whatever they want because this stuff hasn't been done before. When it comes to intellectual property rights and all of that kind of stuff, the law is always paying catch up. Sorry, always playing catch up. And with the decline of things like class action suits, so people can't place lawsuits as a group anymore, it makes it very very difficult. Or at least in the UK, they can't. It makes it very very difficult to have any redress. Because a single person cannot take on Facebook.
0: And um, One of the things we were talking about earlier was how... So at Snow Crash, the, the powerful are the homeless guy with the motorbike, the guy who lives in a storage container who's really good with a virtual sword. And yet in our world, we haven't seen that upturning because the powerful on the internet are actually the powerful in the real world. So, um, usually, I mean, a lot of computer... Uh, BT was a telecom telephone company, now it's an internet provider. The most followed person on Twitter is the President of the United States. We haven't got some alternate um, powerful person on the internet to rival him.
1: Stephen Fry.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, but the, the, the comparison is nowhere near, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay, there are people who have been made famous and arguably powerful by the internet, but the structures have remained actually quite similar.
1: Well, I think there are interesting things about that in the sense that being interested in open source software things like linux and and trying to use as much free software as possible at home and you know this is recorded using open source software this podcast um you know so i I mean i do to a certain extent buy into that element of freedom right i I like using software which i know and exactly what it is and that i own in some sense and you know can take apart if i want and modify how i want and all the rest of it but i think this is a kind of secondary class element in the in, in the book, in the sense that this is freedom for people that have the ability to engage at that level. Right? Hero is the best sword fighter in the world because he's one of the best hackers in the world. His technical ability is what lets him do that. And there's a point in the book when the kind of semi-love interest, who isn't a huge part of it, um, it's it's kind of implied that actually the reason why she broke up with him is not because he wasn't a great hacker, because he is a great hacker. Mm-hmm. It's because that didn't carry over into his real life. He was taking one far more seriously than the other.
3: I was thinking, and maybe I'm just slightly misinterpreting, but do you think that there is a question of our financial ability and there's a difference between um, our presence in the virtual world than what uh, Stevenson is doing in the book because, I mean, we clearly have the financial means to own computers and smartphones and buy computer online games whereas hero protagonist, he's jobless and it's kind of implied that he doesn't have a lot of money so financial means don't really matter. Uh,
2: I would say it's it's almost reversed though because... Mm -hmm. In, in Snow Crash um, whilst few people can own pretty uh, decent enough computers to fully use the internet like people who once they're there they have software, they own the software mm-hmm. and the situation is almost reversed ubiquitous use of computers because they're, they're fairly cheap now in our world mm-hmm. but pretty much all the software we have under as you say terms of service isn't, we don't really own it, we own the licenses to it which theoretically can be taken away should we stop paying for our services, either with money or giving away our data. I think there's a... So one of the ambiguities of the book is that it's not
0: immediately clear how well a marketplace of ideas operates in the metaverse. Because I I guess, ideally, if we were saying this is a good world to live in, that anyone with an idea could log into a public terminal and say, hey, here's this thing you could do with code. But it's pretty clear that talking to um, David one of the senior guys at Black Sun is an incredibly difficult appointment to get and so you have to be important in another sense already right
1: yeah I mean there's certainly a, it has a social infrastructure of its own yeah. right and it's an elitist one mm. um, I mean I guess the...
0: the most humiliating thing that happens to David is that when he crashes he's thrown out of his own bar by his
1: own virtual bouncers well one of the tensions there's, there's some great books by a woman called Gabriella Coleman who studied anonymous and various open source movements and she wrote a fantastic book called Coding Freedom um, which was about the free and open source movement and one of the things that she notes in that book is that there's actually quite a big tension in the kind of inverted commerce marketplace of ideas version of software development between democracy so the idea is you're always accountable because everyone can see your code and everyone can test it and change it if they like and actually do it better right i mean rule one of this kind of community is someone can do it better yeah. but also elitism in the sense that you end up with a relatively small selection of historically important kind of legendary hackers right hero has some of this aspect in the book he's well known um as someone who designed you know the trash system in the metaverse or whatever as is David you know these are people that are equ- effectively the equivalent of people like Richard Storm and um and Linus Torvalds in 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 our world you know key proponents of open software and, and and forms of development and all that kind of thing you know I mean one of the interesting things that's always pointed out in discussions over open source software is that Bill Gates and um the Apple guy Steve Jobs Steve Jobs they were hackers right and, and but one of the criticisms that's then made of that is well they're businessmen now you know we can't tell how good they are until we see them hack until we see them do this right and so you know Hero in the book he abandons the division right well he does in a sense but then you know at the end when he's finally you know trying to stop the snow crash virus from spreading you know he makes it into a big advert right by making himself awesome mm-hmm. right and being an internet ninja thing thing. I think so
0: for the second month running we've managed to talk about half the book and not the other half because the other half of Snow Crash is um, the idea of Sumerian languages and (laughs) ideas and viruses and linguistics and uh, perhaps understandably, we've gone and focused on the virtual stuff but what do people think of the admittedly slightly clunky sections where they're talking about memetic ideas and languages, almost as
1: programs. Yeah, so I mean, you know it's Chomsky and linguistics, right? Yeah. I mean, Chomsky's idea is that there is, effectively is the idea that's put forth in the book, actually, that there's deep structures of the brain that are, relatively speaking, universal. Um, and, at least allegorically, a lot of the stuff that's talked about in the book follows some of the debates that have happened within academia over that idea. I think it's quite a common it's quite a common one. It's also quite a it's quite a contemporary kind of liberal ideology to me in the sense that a lot of the way that these kind of big data companies see data and what that data represents is basically if you know enough, you can hack it you can change things right and this is what Juanita effectively does in the book she ascends to become you know, what the book calls a neuro-linguistic hacker, right? But, I mean, effectively, that's extending the idea of hacking to other spheres. And actually, this parallels a development in open-source software, where when they were trying to make free and open-source software a legitimate enterprise and respected by the law so that it could defend itself in courts over copyright claims and all the rest of it, the attitude that was taken by people... In the Debian development community and various other Linux distributions, was that hang on a second, law is a system, and if law is a system, then we can repurpose it and hack it, and it worked out really well for them. And that's how things like Creative Commons um, comes about, is by is through that kind of thinking.
0: I think alongside Chomsky, it also obviously borrows from Dawkins, right? The idea that an idea can be a mimetic virus that. Um, You can have an idea and you can pass it from human to human or animal to animal and if it's useful it will replicate itself or it might get changed as circumstances change. The example in the book is that knowing how to make bread is a virus or a shem as it's termed. That once someone knows that they could infect someone else with that idea and because that's a very useful thing to do. They can pass it around. Now certainly that follows the theory but is that how language works?
3: I mean no. I was thinking that maybe... Because in the book, um, I think uh, one of the discussions between hero protagonist and librarian is that hero protagonist discovers that, well, um, the fact that um, the same issues were perpetuated were preventing people from thinking. So actually made me think that the fact that we learn more and more languages allows us to be more and more creative, right? Isn't it the purpose of the, of the plot to make us think about this? Yeah,
1: I think it's a, I mean, it's a balance, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the argument is that effectively, and this is what it does to the myth of the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, people all speak the same language, they can build this tower together, and then something happens which resets that, and they're or, or, or you know, they, they're all speaking different languages, and then they can't cooperate, right? I mean, that's the mm-hmm. fundamental thing. So I, I, I think that... I'm not entirely comfortable with this way of thinking about it, but I, th- I think the story would be that to have a society and to cooperate with other people, which you have to when you come into contact with other people, there has to be some part of you which is the same as them or some point of reference which you share. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's precisely what the virus does. Right? It makes people... Th- I think this is the idea behind the, what in the book is called the metavirus. Mm-hmm. It makes people sufficiently similar that they can pass information between them. I mean, that's quite an interesting idea because, you know, along the kind of line that socialization is more about how you're brought up than the inherent properties you have, right? At some point, you know, your entire socialization process is about making you sufficiently similar to other Mm. people Mm. that you're able to refer to them in the first place. Mm. Because otherwise they're utterly unrecognizable. I mean, how does this kind of line up with Epidemiology and and all of that kind of stuff.
0: So, so the thing we always shoehorn into the podcast whenever we can is my thesis because when I'm not reading sci-fi and talking about samurai, uh, I do global health security, and this uh, taps into the idea of well, computer viruses get their name from diseases, but they don't operate the same way. Right, they don't follow epidemiological rules. So I'm not entirely sure that the the metaphor is quite appropriate, but the example we were talking about earlier is, of course, the famous World of Warcraft one, where it wasn't a. Most viruses will sit in your registry, or they'll try and get a particular detail off your computer, or they'll use a part of your processor to do a DDoS attack or something. But what was interesting with the World of Warcraft's blood disease problem was that it was a bug that went around infecting people, and not their registry or their processor or whatever, it was their avatar and a word coined by the novel, right? So your character in this virtual universe had a problem which stopped you from playing, and this was bad because that's a world with social currency. You want to play to have fun and be successful and have power. And it was one you could pass on to other people by standing near them. And what was curious about this is that this computer virus did act like a normal virus. So people tried to quarantine their own settlements, um, other people deliberately tried to infect other settlements, like some kind sort of bioterrorist. Bug catchers emerged. People who wanted to get the virus, for whatever reason, bug catchers do these things. Uh, and the story always goes that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Containment, in the United States, uh, disease management government, uh, you know, the story always goes they demanded all of Blizzard's data on what happened. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually true. If anyone listening has an actual citation for that, I'd love to read what anything they wrote up about it. because It's the closest we've got to what happens in Snow Crash. Mm-hmm. So something John and I were talking about was... So this comes in 1992. And there's a, clearly a lot of Japanese influence on... I mean, quite clearly from the samurai and the fact that he's half Japanese and there's the illusion guy. But we see a lot of American cultural artifacts from this era importing japanese ideas tropes and motifs and this can both be the faceless corporations of robocop and Die Hard, but also we've now got a generation of um media consumers who are watching anime experiencing japanese computer games and reading manga and so we sort of see a two-pronged both hero and villain folding in of japanese cultural ideas into american culture
2: but the other thing which I also got out of this is there's certainly like this is approaching like the the high point of Japanese cultural influence on the US but the other thing which I really got out of it in terms of like the sort of anarchic state but super capitalist elements of the real world is sort of the links to the opening up of of China and the special economic zones and also the sort of gangster capitalism of the disintegration of the Soviet Union starts to also come through and apply, you know, what if this could happen to the United States? I just think that is a really interesting sort of way of transferring it. Well, I mean, this is the first cyberpunk we've done, if you can't go out to of electric sheep,
0: we also did Neuromatter, and all of those deal in some way with China or the Soviet Union and the collapse of a communal ideal but also marry it to a collapse of American government
1: yeah I was I was just wondering I mean the reason I brought that up earlier was just because I mean the main character uses samurai swords right Like, I mean it's it's fairly and actually there are some kind of reflections in the book on, on, on kind of the impact of the second world war um, and it's kind of implied I think that this is a real meeting point between civilizations I mean hero as a character struggles too, right? So you have that kind of hybrid aspect. But, I mean, there seems to be the kind of implication that the way business is done at various points in this kind of, so there's lots of different countries, but they're all connected by capitalism. Yeah. Actually, the main conflict seems to arise from the fact that business is done differently in different ways. And there's, uh, sorry, in different places, and different cultures. You know, there's lots of stuff about how the Mafia, who are one of the major corporations in this world, you know, they try to make everything personal, right? Not because it is, but because it's a good management technique. You know, it works, right? You know, there's things about Hero being, it refers to him in the book, when he he comes into contact with certain characters, that he's sufficiently deferential. You know, people bow more often than they shake hands. And so and so on. And it seems like a kind of interesting point at which this... Because it's not necessarily just a transformation in terms of the political import, uh, the the cultural kind of importing of Japanese uh, manga and anime and all that kind of thing, but it's also happening in terms of management practice. Um, This is
0: also the era where all the businessmen are reading The Art of War, right? Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But I'm actually going to contradict myself because I spent some time trying to Identify the point at which the samurai sword becomes the sword of choice for the American hero, because of course it used to be Errol Flynn waving a rapier or something around. And so of course you know that actually comes decades before the nineties. The point at which the katana becomes the sword of choice for the movie hero is Star Wars. Star Wars is a samurai film, and it's probably, I think, the first real importing of Japanese ideas into the American pop culture like that. Darth Vader is a samurai lord. I mean, just look at his helmet. He's got the fancy-ass sword. The hero gets given his father's
1: sword. Which and... is really bad, but when was Star Wars? 77. Uh, okay, so you, you don't have Akira yet. And no. Ghost in the Shell. And... Oh, th- th- those are really
0: important, but I certainly think that samurai movies and other Japanese cultural things are leaving their mark on Hollywood long before this comes to be.
2: Well, I mean, that was like the where it made the breakthrough. But I mean... In some ways, it had been around for much of the previous two decades with the importations from like Hong Kong cinema, and although it was low budget, it certainly did make a big impact because of the uh, matinee cinema market, where you did have a lot of people running around with Eastern style swords. I mean, there's a few examples I could know.
0: I mean, does this, does that should our actual point be that? rather than trying to put Snow Crash on the crest of a wave because we think it should go there, that you've always got this
1: interaction? Well, I mean, yeah, of course. Um, you know. But I mean, it is interesting to view it in that way because I think it is actually quite easy to look at this book and think it has a pretty bad plot. I don't don't think it's got a very good plot.
0: Well, I mean, the the, the transitions between Virtual Samurai and let's talk about Middle Eastern linguistic
1: history are fairly (laughs) clunky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not unknown for Neil Stephenson books, but he has got quite a long-standing interest in these kind of areas. I mean, he has written stuff about sword fighting and all that kind of stuff in the past. Um, But, yeah. Was it before or after
2: Snow Crash? I mean, because you look towards... The year 2000, and, and you look into sort of gaming culture, and the most cliche thing is man in trench coat, dual wielding katanas. And was this what gave that trope to the world, or ha- had it come before then? Because, I mean, that solidified into being sort of like both the coolest and the worst example of the lack of creativity in the genre. Well, I think it isn't,
1: it isn't. I mean, I think that generally speaking or what's generally understood to be Snow Crash's major cultural impact rather than the stuff it was just picking up on is its idea of online interaction Mm. right so you've got two major visions of what it's like to use a computer and code and engage in cyberspace right one is Neuromancer in which it's quite a mechanized thing that's kind of still if you like at least visually enthralled to electronic chips and circuits and things like that so it is a kind of netherworld and the other one is snow crash where as much as possible people try to replicate real life you know this is the kind of video game idea um you have a house and a motorbike yeah yeah um so i think you know it, it's one of the i mean it notes in the acknowledgments to the book or the afterwards sorry of the book that the term Avatar had previously been used to describe immersive computing environments. But I, I think Snow Crash is definitely one of the popularizers of that idea. Um, you know, long before you start getting things like, I think EverQuest was probably three years later. Yeah. No, it was longer than that. I'm not sure. Serana, so one of the reasons we brought you in on this one was,
0: certainly when I first read Snow Crash, I was struck by the parallels between the burb where people live out middle class existence behind high walls and security fences, and Israel, where settlements exist with apparent sovereignty within territory, but their ability to project that sovereignty ends at their wall.
3: Um, I mean, definitely. I mean, there is a a point to take home um, and to make a comparison, but you should not forget that Jewish settlements are under Israeli sovereignty. So they don't have the possibility to um, come up or have their own uh, sovereignty or to establish new rules. So I think the the comparison ends there, because my sense is that the burglaves are quite different. I mean, the burglaves have their own uh, constitution, have their own um, security services. Um, They don't
0: have to to follow pre-existing rules.
3: I don't think, so. Yeah. I don't think so, I would say so, yeah, so maybe the comparison ends. I mean I would actually, first of all, when I was reading about birthplace, I was actually thinking about gated communities that exist in um, in different parts of the world, um, I mean, the only example that I know is, is Pakistan, for instance. Well,
1: I think they're all over the place, I mean, they're certainly yeah. all over Russia yeah. and things, and one of the things I did, I think I agree with you on the Israel thing specifically, but I mean, one of the things I did think about was more kind of the mentality that that breeds in people of living on the frontier mm. um, and things. But, I mean, also, am I right in saying that, you know, there was, I mean, the kibbutz movement mm. was precisely a, you know, a slightly more alternative um, or a, an attempt mm. at, at, at providing kind of alternative kind of... There would be a kibbutz for every lifestyle mm. Mm. in that sense. But, I mean, you know, that, that parallels hippie communes and, and, and so and mm. so on in the 60s.
3: I mean definitely i mean the the kibbutz it's it's very socialist, right? I mean kids will be brought up together um everybody will uh, would work for the benefit of the community, whereas obviously settlements are very, very different um, you are living in a certain community, you have your own supermarkets, and obviously they are the roads right the roads that would connect you as a as a settler with proper Israel, and the roads mm-hmm. that well we all know or at least most of us know that um, Palestinians can't use
1: um. what about things like special economic zones in
2: China well that's one of the things where I I thought it was quite interesting with the virtually anything goes mentality in some ways because I mean well
0: I I guess one parallel that strikes out is that a couple of months ago there was that news story that central Chinese authority had had to perform a huge raid on what was essentially an entire town of drug dealers and that from behind this walled town which of course would have its own local government authority and, and local rulers who weren't democratically elected that they, they weren't almost they, were out, they weren't outside the law in a criminal sense, they were an alternate governmental system of you know they, they had their own internal structures beyond a wall and I think that was a very interesting parallel from a escaping of state power point of view.
1: Yeah, I'd be interested though, I mean, just in terms of the, the Hong Kong parallel in particular, I mean, presumably, even though it's, you know, X years after the kind of return of Hong Kong to Chinese control, or, you know, however it's referred to, I don't know. Um, but I mean, presumably, it's still fundamentally culturally different in many ways. I mean, it remains as this kind of... At least a friend of mine once told me that he could... I mean it's not necessarily cosmopolitan but he he was telling me that he could go away he studied here and so he didn't go home very often he'd go home once a year and actually when he went home the slang had changed dramatically to the point where he was having trouble keeping up Um, (laughs) precisely because of the highly globalised nature of of Hong Kong's interactions with the
0: world Well, Well certainly a lot of Hong Kong citizens identify as being from Hong Kong not China
2: Well, it's it's a complex mixture of various identities because you you can't separate out the the Chinese heritage of the Hong Kong Chinese, but the fact that they didn't go through the Maoist period in particular, and they still some ways maintain sort of like a strong Confucian heritage, which is substantially weaker deliberately as a government policy on the mainland. But also, I mean, even certain key phrases like, you know, democracy on the mainland and in Hong Kong means very, very different things because, like, uh, it's one of the studies I was reading recently in 2002, there was a big study on the mainland saying, you know, to what extent do you think democracy works in China? And 66% of people said it either works well or very well. But, I mean, we would, as Westerners, ask... What yeah. democracy? So I mean, yeah, there is a, a very big difference between the identities, and in some ways, I think going back to Snow Crash, it's like the idealist version of like the the Hong Kong, Mister Lee's greater Hong Kong does show through
1: in in that particular franchise. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that these things are. I mean, funnily enough, you know, people. At least, seemingly have more choice uh, to choose where they, in many cases it's put across as people having more choice between where they live and all that kind of thing. I mean, it's a case of the financial means to actually do so. But, you know, the countries are referred to, you know, very differently. Um, You know, Mr. Lee's greater Hong Kong accepts any immigrant. Right. Implies a lot. Well, there's, there's certainly a white supremacist. Um, there's an a New South it Africa. Yeah. Um, You know, and there's an Aryan one and, and, and so on and so on. Um, You know, I think the question is, you know, what happens to the people in between, right? I mean, ultimately, they're probably just caught in a crossfire. It moves away from this idea that a, a country has to be a continuous thing. You know, there's multiple Mr. Lee's Greatest Hong Kong and they're referred to as franchises or fraudulence or, you know, something. Um And... The question is the extent to which these things have in common. Now, of course, in the book, they're brought together by a common external threat, right? Which, funnily enough, is a massive in wave of migration. Um, but at a cultural level or whatever, you know, supposedly they're very different. The fact that they're united by capitalism in the end, you know, that's that's kind of the common thing.
2: But they're united not only just by capitalism, but by the franchises. Three ring binders. They've got their culture right there laminated yes. in a loosely file. And, and it's argued that that's what makes a franchise successful, right? That if you,
0: if you can get it down to your three ring binder, you can then copy and hand out. that If your
1: idea is replicable, if it can spread like a virus. Yeah, and once that's what makes it, successful viruses, right? Yeah. You know, so okay. again, the question is one of socialisation. <laughs> uh, right, so I think we'll be uh, tying it up there. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Thanks for listening. Um, We're not sure what the
0: next book will be, but... uh, We're never sure. Yeah. We're never sure. We'll find out when we read it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Thank
3: you.